You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is uh, Father James Scholl. I would like to continue with our series on uh, political philosophy's introduction. What we have done so far is we have read the ethics of Aristotle, and uh, that, in some sense, in the context of Greek uh, thought, Greek political thought, Greek social thought, philosophical thought. Then we read three essays of uh, Cicero, the Roman orator and and, uh, writer, philosopher. Uh, We read his essay on old age, his essay on duties, on moral philosophy, and his uh, speech against Barry. Now I would like to begin uh, three talks on a more modern book, as I mentioned before, that of Professor Yves Simon, which is called A General Theory of Authority. This is a relatively small book, about 150 pages. So if you read along with me, you want to read about 50 pages for each discussion. What I will try to do here is explain the general outline of this book. It is a very rich book. It is a book of many insights, and I will try to point some of them out. It is a book that needs to be read carefully, and um, it needs to be read diligently. It is, I think, a wonderful book and one with surpassing insight into it. Now, Simon was a very clear and uh, careful thinker. He has another sort of um, uh, more famous book, which is called The Philosophy of Democratic Government. He writes on freedom, freedom of choice, on work, on culture, on logic, on science and its methods, on ethics, there seems to be a, there is a Simone society, one devoted to the study of his works. I did an introduction to a book of essays of Simone called uh, Affirming the Absolute. This book we are reading, A General Theory of Authority, constitutes a modern explication, as I call it, of what Aristotle, of Aristotle's dictum that man is by nature a political animal, and what that means. Simon spelled out the reason. So, so Aristotle says man is a political animal. Okay, that's what Aristotle said. What is the reason why he said that man is by nature a political animal. So if you remember what we said at the end of the ethics, that when Aristotle passed to the ethics, it was through what Simon will call deficiency, through something being wrong with it. But we also said that for Aristotle, there would be a polis, there would be politics, even if there were no uh, crime or fault in human nature. So it's a modern book. And Simon uh, spelled these reasons out. Now, if you see the order of the book, just like uh, that's what St. Thomas says, the order of anything, uh, you will see the argument 
clearly. You have to think your way through the argument. The book is divided into two parts, basically. The first part is the question of the natural need or the philosophical need for authority, which means that there are a principle of rule, a decision-making principle that must be present in any kind of an operation in both ethical and political sciences. And then secondly, he asked in the second part of the book, uh, the place of authority in matters of truth and in matters of the good, what is the relationship of authority to what is true and the relationship of authority to what is good? The first thing he does is explain why authority might have a bad name, and that is arguments from life, that is, life is more sp uh, spontaneous, uh, arguments from freedom, arguments from science, and arguments from order. So these arguments, he says, are arguments that would suggest that really authority is a bad thing. Uh, so he spells them out. He does what St. Thomas does. He tells you what the uh, opposition or the opposite position is so that he can clarify his own position, uh, which is that authority is, in fact, a natural and reasonable thing, but you have to see the reasonable arguments to see why it is so. Simon argues that the need for authority is first, in the first section uh, of his book, he argues that need is necessary. For this necessity, he gives two arguments. So that's the structure of the book. He gives two arguments. One essential, he calls it, uh, uh, which he calls the argument from the unity of action. And one which he calls most essential, uh, which he calls the argument from the material willing of the common good. Now that sounds very complicated, but we will uh, try to explain it more clearly. He also has what he calls a substitutional argument for authority, which is the one we most are familiar with, really, which he <clears throat> mentions in the early chapters and treats in the later chapters, namely uh, parental authority and other substitutional authorities that come up. So a substitution authority means authority is taking place of reason or some other factor which should be there, but if it isn't, authority then will have to, in some sense, supply for it. Simon maintains that in the matter of truth and the good, authority is not essential, but it is helpful and indeed is something we rely on all of the time. Here he has a final distinction between the witness and the teacher, as we will see. So the witness is a an authority, as the teacher is an authority, but not in the same way, and yet they are substitutional for something that should be there. So the witness is a substitute for someone who is there. A teacher is a substitute indeed for the knowledge that we should uh, already have but do not. There are many beautiful and uh, profound things in this book. Students often find it a difficult and demanding book, which it is. 
but that should not turn us turn us away from it. Indeed, it should be a reason to read it many times. There is nothing wrong with having to uh, work uh, to understand something, something important. There's nothing wrong with having to spend time and, uh, and, and think about it. Simone has lovely things to say on friendship. You should keep Aristotle's great treatise on friendship in mind as you read this book and read what he says on friendship. As we mentioned, Cicero also has a famous essay called The De Amicitia, or On Friendship. That is well worth looking up. Um, I should be able to find it online. The last section of the book, called Freedom from the Self, is very good. It's on uh, prudence. And uh, this is also a treatise uh, well, the one on the freedom of the self is not, uh, it, but that basically is, is a discussion about how you can be so self-centered that you do not see something outside of yourself. This book is also a treatise on the intellectual virtues. Remember, that was in book six of the Ethics, though it is primarily a treatise on prudence, also book six, that is, on the intellectual virtue of the moral virtues. So prudence is the right reason of what we ought to do in this time, in this place, in this circumstances, judging the conditions that are before us. Simone's basic insight is that the more intelligent we are, uh, the freer we are, and therefore the more, not less, we need authority. So the more choices you have, the more difficult sometimes it is to make a decision. And yet the more choices you have, the freer you are. If you only have one choice, then you have to do it or not do it. That's fairly restricted. If you have 20 choices and you have to choose one of them uh, rather than the other one, then you have to give reasons and find out why you're choosing this one. But the point is that you're freer, so the more intelligent you are, in that sense, the freer, the more alternatives you have. <clears throat> Basically, Simone's book is a critique of Rousseau, who advised, uh, who devised a theory that supposedly they got rid of authority altogether. Remember, this is an essay on the rational need for pol for political and personal authority. It does not directly explain how this authority should be structured, a question that Aristotle asked in the politics uh, in the six forms of regime, which are six forms of the location of the authority-making body within any political, any political society. Yves Simone was French, but taught in Canada and the United States. He was a friend and student of Jacques Maritain, a famous French philosopher about, the, about whom I have written a book called Jacques Maritain, the Philosopher in Society. Here I am simply going to mention in this first part, we have two more coming, 
I'm going to mention and make comments about it, about why this is important from some of the uh, passages that Simon has. And they always struck me as particularly true and insightful. The first one is on page 17. He says, Why should it be impossible to work out a social science pattern after physics and, like physics, objective, impersonal, free from anthropomorphic bias, free from value judgment, exact, rigorous, indifferent to national or personal whims and uh, or and preferences, necessities, and uh, irresistible. Why can't we have a science which gives no doubt that we can come to the conclusion and so forth? The book of Simon is designed to show why this scientific desire uh, is, is neither possible nor it is desirable. Is it desirable? Such a science would eliminate all freedom. Let's say if it was absolutely certain what you could do, uh, and and that's why you did it, it would be uh, there would be no freedom, and by that all responsibility uh, from the human action. So this is what we discussed in Book 7 of the Ethics. So it's a very important thing, and Simon is extremely critical of those moral and political writers who think that what they're doing is imitating the physical sciences and their uh, mathematical certitudes. The reason that is always impossible, as we saw also, is that because in the case of, uh, of human action, every action that every human being takes at any time could have been otherwise and could be otherwise until after he has chosen it. So therefore, there is no mind ahead of time which can foresee what that particular person will do, and yet that action is precisely what the context of politics and ethics is about. So, see what is said about Rousseau on page 21. So again, this book is, in a certain sense, a uh, an alternative to Rousseau. And Simon says, quote, Remarkably, the theory that the method of authority is a poor substitute for the uh, pedagogical power of nature has been accepted in varying degrees of enthusiasm or uh, reluctance by all schools of, uh, of pedagogy and has demonstrated very much testing power or lasting power. So therefore the idea that uh, this method of, uh, of authority is a uh, poor substitute for uh, something else is what he considers what he's attacking. Therefore, authority is more reasonable than these alternatives that are suggested. On page 22, he says, The problem is whether deficiencies alone, natural or 
caused by accident or crime cause authority to be necessary. So the only reason we have authority is because something has gone wrong. If nothing went wrong, would we have no need for authority? Simon's answer is we would have need for authority, and his reasoning is what this book is about. That is to say, it is natural that there be such thing as authority in families and in political institutions in different ways. So this is the uh, heart of the thesis which Simon uh, uh, directs his argument, that there is such a thing as authority which is not substitutional, that is to say, which doesn't take the place of something which has gone wrong. <clears throat> we'll see this. The next remark is from page 24, where he says, it is often held that a need is necessarily self-centered. He said, that's a very interesting point here. So he's talking about um, uh, whether a need for food, for example, is self-centered, uh, which it is. But it isn't a bad thing that it's self-centered because that is the nature of what it is. So he says, in fact, he says, the notion of need uh, expresses merely the, um, the state, uh, <clears throat> it expresses merely the state of a, of a tendency, not the, not yet satisfied with ultimately accomplishment. So need just means I want something, but I don't yet have it. Among the tendencies, which make up the dynamism of a rational being, some are self-centered and some are generous. So you can have such a thing as a need for some generosity. All admit of a state of need, and the need to give is no less real than the need to take. That's a very important point. The need to give, that is to say, to be generous. Consider, he says, the grounding of friendship and the way in which a man is related to his friends. <clears throat> Note how this uh, relates to Aristotle's discussion of giving and receiving uh, uh, within friendship. So, so the need, so the need for friendship is partially the the desire to give the other. Uh, something of oneself. Next, he says the following. He says, yet the gift he's talking about, as we mentioned, satisfies also a need in the giver. Such a non-self-centered need, that is a gift, you're going to give it to somebody else. Such a non-self-centered need may attain a high degree of intensity. The accomplished person whom we are considering would be unhappy if he knew no children to uh, please with Christmas presents and his home coming his homecoming from remote lands. His knowledge would give him little joy if he had no chance to impart it to eager intellects, and the very 
firmness of his character uh, would seem to him a tedious advantage if it should never result in a friend in friends achieving greater mastery over himself this is page 26 the meaning of a gift is one of the most profound of all philosophical considerations so basically what simone has said here that if you're a man and you have uh, no one to whom you can give something to uh, Christmas or any other time, uh, your life is very lonely. Uh, there's a, there's a, you have all of the riches that you can want, everything you can want, but nothing you can do with it. Nothing that doesn't do you any good anymore. And yet at the same time, you want to give it to someone, and you want that gift to be a generous thing. And so this is what he means by a non-self-centered uh, need, that there is something outside of us uh, that is also part of our being, which is not what we would simply call selfish, self-centered. The next comment he makes is this on page 28. He says that death is known to be particularly hard and surrounded with anxiety by those who end their days in individual loneliness. So recall what we saw in Cicero's old age about death. Death, of course, is always going to be in some sense by ourselves. But if we are surrounded by family and friends, there is a certain sense in which it is shared. It is not our loneliness in some sense is compensated for, and there is a need that we have them to be there. Aristotle in 1094b said, the common good, that is, say, the end of the polis, the good which we call common, is greater and more divine than the private good, the end of the quotation. Now, Simon has a very interesting comment on this. It's a profound comment, really. It's on page 29, and it is uh, a, a bit long. Let me read it for you, though. Simon cites this passage, this very passage, and he says, greater expresses a higher degree of perfection uh, with regard both to a duration and to uh, diversity. So greater good means a good higher in lasting longer and one with different kinds of realities within it. Divine, in the translation of the Greek word theorane, to contemplate or to know, does not uh, designate so much a godlike essence as a participation in a privilege of imperishability. So divine means the thing is not going to perish. In this world of change, Simon continues, Individuals come and go, so we come and go. We come into existence and go out of existence. The law of generation and corruption covers the whole universe of nature. This law is transcended in a very proper sense 
by the incorruptibility of the species and the immortality of the human association. That is, the nation lasts longer than the single individuals within it. So there's some sense in which the nation or the polis continues beyond the lifetime of those who have lived in it. The masterpiece of natural, the natural world cannot be found in the transient individual, Simon says. Nor can it be found in the species, meaning the species that one generation succeeds another generation, uh, which is uh, not imperishable except in the state of universality. That is to say, the species, insofar as we understand what it is to be man, will not change, but this actual species, which is existing in and out of existence, may sometimes end. That is, actual human species can be destroyed. The idea of, of what it is to be a human being, however, remains even if all human beings were destroyed. But it is this state of universality in this state. It is no longer uh, unqualifiably real. That is, an idea of a man versus a man walking, let's say, the idea of man versus John and Susie and, and Harry are different. And yet they refer, the word man is an abstraction which refers to all men. Human communities, now this is important to understand this. Human communities are the highest attainments of nature, for they are virtually uh, unlimited with regard to diversity of uh, perfection and virtually uh, immortal. Beyond the satisfaction of individual need, the association of men serves a good that is unique in plenitude and duration, the common good of the human community. The end of the quotation. So that's a very powerful thing that the most masterpiece of civilization is this polis which contains uh, the actual human beings as they live and, and in some sense uh, transcends their individual lives to carry on beyond them. So this is a remarkable passage and it is the real philosophical justification for the existence of an organized state or society. See uh, in, in my book, The Politics of Heaven and Hell, the chapter called The Reality of Society, uh, according to St. Thomas, which goes into this idea that a state is not based, uh, is not itself a person, but it is a relation, relational form uh, that makes possible multiple perfections and lasts beyond everyone's, uh, one, someone's own lifetime. What is the difference between practical and theoretical intellect, as we saw in, in Aristotle? Here's what Simon has to say about that on page 82. 
He says, to obtain uh, clear definitions of these two orders, the theoretical and the practical, which is uh, in book six of the ethics. Let us formulate the question that we strive to answer in each of the in each of them. Every practical cognition, as every cognition which has to do with doing or making something, is designed to answer directly or indirectly the question, what ought I to do? When you answer that question, what I ought to do or make, you are asking a practical question. What should we have done? What should we do? All these are practical. The ultimate answer to the practical question is a command, that is, a judgment so related to action as to constitute its form. Inasmuch as a judgment is based, is meant to be the form of an action, truth consists in the conformity, as Aristotle said, the conformity uh, to the requirements of uh, sound intention. That is, my action is found, formed by what I ought to do. The what uh, expressed a judgment, rectoratio octavillium, rectoratio agitum, things to be done and things to be made. Notice that book six of the ethics, uh, the virtue of thought, the virtues of thought, all are designed to state how the truth exists in theoretical and practical uh, action. So the practical action wants to know what is to be done, what is what is the thing that is that's going on. Whereas theoretical intellect simply wants to know what is the thing. It doesn't doesn't intend to do anything about it. So Simon continues then in eighty two he says just as practical cognition, as the notion of I'm going to make something, I'm going to do something is an answer to the question, what ought we to do? And theoretical uh, uh, cognition is directed to an answer to the question, what are these things? But this definition, uh, any judgment whose perfection consists in conformity to a real state of affairs is uh, theoretical. So uh, the truth of the thing is, this is not true when I when I affirm of it. In a much, uh, in as much as the purpose of the theoretical mind is to know when what things are, expl explanatory knowledge uh, is the more uh, genuine and uh, accordingly the more theoretical part of the theoretical order, he said. The classical definition of truth is the conformity, the adequatio, of the mind into reality. 
that is to say, of what is that it is, and of what is not that it is not. Remember, uh, there is only one mind. We use it practically in practical things to do or to make, in which case the truth is a conformity to our actions with our actions or with what we ought to do. We also use the mind in uh, theoretical things, which are which are a form of that thing uh, across the uh, street that is a tree. I say that it is, and that's all I care about. I'm not going to cut it down. I'm not going to do anything about it. I just know what it is. Uh, then Simon says, in page 83, he says, primarily, theory, theorem, contemplation, means precisely to, to, to gaze upon things, to know things. Anything can be contemplated, uh, Simon says, a landscape, a child, an historical event, or a uh, transcendental uh, property of being or good. So we can think about anything that we, that we come across, that we get. To contemplate means that we behold what is the object of our attention. We will see more of this in the Schumacher book. We ought to know solely uh, in order to see it and to know it in the theoretical order. We are not concerned with doing anything about it. It's okay to do something about it, perhaps, but there is an act that comes first, which is simply knowing what the thing is, con contemplating, rejoicing in it. We must recall Aristotle. There is a pleasure in simply knowing the truth of things, pleasure in simply knowing the truth of things that they are. It is true that once we know something, we may uh, decide, uh, let's go back to book three of the ethic, we may decide to do something about it uh, or to do something about ourselves, make a chair or become just. But simply to know what a chair is and what justice is, is in its own delight and it's to know the truth of the thing itself. He continues on in E6 with this remark. He says, judgment is entirely formed when the mind, by perceiving the truth of a proposition, that is, its conformity with the real, assents to this proposition. So when we can assent to the truth that this does, uh, designate this particular thing, then that's where the truth exists in our mind, in our, uh, in our affirmation of this. I might add, as an aside, that it is not enough to know political things. We must know also philosophical, so philosophy, theology and history, science, economics, languages, poetry, music, uh, since all of these things uh, relate to our full good and the polis is the general place 
following Simone's notion of authority and the common good, in which many different things can flourish for the uh, common good itself, which is also uh, our good. So the good that you have and you do, in certain sense, is also my good, because you have put something in the world of good that I don't know anything about or may come to know about. Uh, he then continues in 88 and 89 to say, but the term towards which there is progress is determinate knowledge. That's an important point. We make progress from not knowing to knowing. And when we arrive at the to know and to know the thing, our, we don't need any more progress because we do know the thing. Uh, and therefore, it is not simply the free uh, conviction or free construction. We might say that we can freely distrust any kind of national moral kind of thing, but that's not what you really mean by progress of intelligence. Progress of intelligence means to know the things that really exist and not simply the imaginations that we come up with which do not exist. Whenever research ends in free construction, Simon says, whenever it ends up with something that has no relation to reality and no account for it, the theoretical intellect uh, has uh, undergone a setback because that's not what it's for. What he deals with here is the purpose of intellect to know how things are. If, say, uh, some conclusion is absolutely certain, grounded in evidence and argument, the world is round, for example, it is not a perfection of the intellect to say that this knowledge is really only a really only something uh, made up by some imagination. And then he says, on page 95, he says, but here trouble arises about the classroom and it spills over into three groups. It's a very interesting thing. He says there are three uh, types of students, he says. Uh, those who uh, are perfectly um, satisfied or perfectly uh, submissive because they're only, I say the only reason they're in study is because they're interested in getting credit for it, good grades. The, those, then there are those who are said to have a powerful critical minds. So the first class group, those who are therefore um, grades. Second, there are those who have critical minds. And those are the ones who already know all the answers and therefore are constantly interrupting the class, uh, saying, well, this is what the answer is. And they are basically unteachable because they think they already know everything. And he says, then there are those who are described as intelligently teachable, or, as I say, eminently teachable. That's this whole purpose of this book, the docility. Those who are teachable. So Simon says that there are three kinds of students, those who don't really care about the matter but only want to get a grade, 
those who already know everything and therefore are not teachable, and then those who know that they don't know and know that the best way to find out is to follow the argument of the course, and therefore, therefore they can be teachable. He said the first group uh, does not really belong to um, uh, the theoretical life. Critical minds prefer uh, the withholding of judgment and vindication, uh, vindicated uh, through uh, never-ending uh, objections. So people who always object to everything, they never come to grips with the argument. They are not satisfied unless they silence the teacher and um, uh, the very work of teaching. Teachable minds have the privilege of understanding that the Provisional belief often is the best, or the strictly uh, indispensable way the, uh, to science. So therefore, this latter group, he says, uh, recognize that if you follow the argument of the teacher and it's a well-developed argument, you yourself will be able to follow the argument and ultimately see the thing yourself. And therefore, you don't need the teacher anymore because you have seen the argument that he is trying to present. And so therefore, the teacher is a substitute for your own intellect in learning the thing. <clears throat> there is a virtue called, as I mentioned in the whole process of our book, is in, of our considerations here, it's called in Latin docilitas, or docility, the capacity of being taught. Simone's distinction here uh, above are, are very good. The student who never asks any question or is never concerned with anything except grades, first group. Second group, the critical mind, that is the person who assumes he already knows everything and there is nothing to know. So his function is really to display what he already knows or thinks he knows. And then third group, is the group that I call the eminently teachable. Simon says intelligently teachable. And those who are willing to be patient, follow, and decide later on the adequacies of the argument that they are learning. Next is a brief comment on page 98. He says, remember that your best teacher may turn out to be someone long since dead. The normal condition is to pass from belief or authority to knowledge. It's a very interesting passage. Our best teachers, Plato or Aristotle, may be long since dead, and yet we can encounter them. They can still teach us if we let them. And then secondly, he says that the normal uh, condition is to say, look, Aristotle, somebody told me Aristotle already meant a lot of, made a lot of good points, uh, so I take that on belief, so I try it out and see whether he does, but when I find whether he does or not, it is not because I still believe it, but because I understand his argument. And finally, I'm going to mention uh, uh, one last uh, passage here on page 100. It's a very great passage, really and one that ought to be constantly remembered. 
So Simon is full of these, and that's what I'm trying to point out here. And we'll perhaps come back to more of these a little bit later in the other considerations. But listen to this. He says, no spontaneous operation of, I've mentioned this in other uh, talks, he said, no spontaneous operation of intellectual uh, relations protects the young philosopher against the risk of delivering himself to error by choosing his teacher infelicitously. This is one of the most profound sentences I have ever read. It follows on the notion that the tyrant is generally a very handsome, intelligent, and attractive person, not at all uh, easily uh, recognized, especially by those uh, with disordered or uh, unformed souls. So that it is possible, in, in a way, in good will, with initial goodwill at least, to deliver one's soul to someone who is a not really a worthy teacher. So there's a certain drama that goes on in universities about the judgment about the teachers uh, that they have, and also there is the opposite, namely the confidence in a good teacher that if you follow what his directions are, then you yourself will learn more easily. And this is the end of our first consideration on the Simon book, uh, A General Theory of Authority. And so we are to read that book in three sections. And so we'll continue that uh, later. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.